Okay, so today I want to talk about tested and proven character. Ugh, fun. Tested and proven character. Tested and proven character. So what is character? You know, when we hear that word, um, uh, that can mean a lot of different things. You know, when you hear character, you may think of a Marvel superhero or something like that, different characters, or if you like me and Joel, we play a street fighter where you think of different characters, different kinds of people that are made up of different things. Um, but in our context, if we're developing character, how do we define that? Like, what is that? What are we working on when we say we're developing our character? We're saying, who are you when nobody else is around? Who are you when you are all alone? And spiritual discipline that often gets overlooked, you know, we talk about, you know, Jesus when he says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, you know, those are the three obvious. But some that we have probably failed to learn in our circle is the discipline of solitude, of spending time alone. And uh, some people really feed off of that. Some people um, don't feed on that at all. You know, Erica does not feed on solitude. Erica, likes she feeds on people. Right? When she's with people, she comes alive. Most people don't spend time alone with the Lord. You know, Lorena was just talk, talking about this. Oh, man, I just need to get out of here. And just get a couple days off in the cabin somewhere in the woods and just hit the reset button. So, I would say everyone needs a day alone once in a while. And just be with yourself. Be with yourself and be with the Lord. But when you spend time alone, what's left is your character. It's who you are. Now, I don't know if you've ever made a major decision in your life and then gone and like, looked in the mirror and you kind of look at yourself and huh, these are the decisions I've made in life. Like, look at this person. Who's this guy? You know, like, who's this? <laughs> you know, you kind of evaluate. You know, sometimes I think we look at people and we judge others by their appearance, but sometimes we look at ourselves and we're like, hmm, what, what is it that I've become in life? What is it that I'm doing? Like, who is this? in front of me. It's a real gut check moment, but our character is so important. It's our heart, and we have to develop it. It's something that has to grow, that when we look in the mirror, that's something we can say, I'm glad of who God's turning me into. I'm so pleased with who I'm becoming in Christ. I've not arrived, but I'm on my way. I'm, you can look in the mirror and say, I'm not who I once was. Man, there are times in my life where there are times in my life where I looked in the mirror and I wasn't happy with what I saw. Or I looked in the mirror and I could see my countenance and thought, you know, I can see my countenance is falling. I'm not happy with that. You know, sin, you can you might be able to hide what you do with sin, but you can't hide what it does to you. It changes your countenance. I mean you've seen us, you've seen each other walk in the room and just their countenance is down. You can't, you can you may hide what's happened, but you can't hide what it did to you. Right? It's character development, learning to, how do we bring that back up? How do we keep it up? How do we live that way? Psalm 11, verse 4. This is the Amplified Classic. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Listen to this. His eyes behold, his eyelids test and prove the children of men. His eyelids. That means when his eyes are closed, they test and it proves the children of men. 
You know, we've heard the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Right? When the eyes seem to be covered, we kind of come out a little bit. When the boss isn't around. Who you are comes to the surface. When the manager is not around, who you are kind of comes out. You start joking around a little bit. You start cutting up. But maybe there's some little things that you let slide that you wouldn't let slide if you were standing right there. So the Bible says that the eyelids of the Lord test and prove the sons of man. We know that when Adam and Eve were given the command, eat of this tree and don't touch this tree, eat the tree of life, but don't eat of the tree, eat, eat of the tree of life, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that there must have been some way that the, the I know the Lord, presence of the Lord is, is everywhere, but he himself, his person, must have been away because the Bible says in Genesis 3-9, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. So that means they heard him coming while the boss was away. They ate the bad fruit while he's walking around. They hear him coming and they start covering up. Right? Who they are was revealed. The eyelids of the Lord test. The, the sons of men. When, when he's away, what's left is their character. You know what's crazy about making character decisions and critical life decisions is God's not going to stop you. He could have stopped Adam and Eve, but he doesn't. You know, his, the love that he gives, he, 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 is, he is pure love, and he wants to be loved back by choice. Our decisions, our choices to choose him over that, it's what shows and reveals our character. Uh, a good passage of proving is uh, in Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 42 through 46. It says, And the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master put in charge of his servants to give them their portion at the proper time? Verse 43, Blessed is that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect at an hour he does not anticipate. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. So what does it mean to be proven, to be tested and proven? It means when he returns, he finds you in well-doing. He finds you doing what you're supposed to be doing. He finds you fulfilling the goal you're supposed to be doing. He finds you on, on the way. He finds you doing well. It's crazy. You look at that passage, and what does, what does pride do? Pride says, I got more time. The pride says, I can fix this later. The character says, do it right the first time. Or if you goof it up, to make restitution. To fix it. Man, there's a power in making restitution. Restitution is when you did someone wrong and then you find a way to make it right. It's making it right. And a lot of times we repent without ever making restitution. But we need to, when we repent, we need to make it right. Like if I stole 10, 10 grand from, from, from Erica, you know, I, somehow I got 10 grand from her. And I said, Erica, I'm really sorry. I, just, I feel so convicted about this. I repent. See you later. You know, and I never give it back to her. I never make restitution. I was like, a lot of repentance is in the restitution. You can say you repent, but if you've not made it right, 
The Bible uh, it, it talks about when, when John the Baptist was baptizing people, the Pharisees came out to be baptized, and he says, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, who wanted you to flee from the wrath to come? Why don't you bring him fruits of repentance? Where are your fruits of repentance? You say you've repented, but you've not made restitution. You've not made it right. This is a powerful thing. This is, this is character. These are the things in daily life that God looks on and he says, yes. I'm telling you, when you begin to bring God good character, his presence is soon to follow. When you bring God pleasure by the way you live, his presence comes. When you realize that that is the key to the anointing, because we're motivated by the anointing. We like power. We like someone coming up here saying, I can hear when I couldn't hear like that before. Like, we like that stuff. We like the, you know, the testimony of overcoming seizures. That's virtue. That's power. Or the rain in my neck doesn't hurt anymore. We like virtue, but virtue comes from God being pleased with something. The pleasure of the Lord. Virtue comes on good character. In the natural, the world says your character comes from your upbringing, from your parents, from your social or economic status, or whether or not you had a father. That is the source of character in the world. Godly character is when you're obedient to the convictions that come from the Holy Spirit. Godly character comes when you say yes and you do it. And then good character starts happening. You know, I think for the most part, our culture has lost its sense of conviction yeah. and its sense of conscience. First yeah. yes. Thessalonians 5.3 tells us, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So that verse tells us that we have a spirit that is united with God, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. You have a soul, your thought, will, and emotion, also is where your conscience is, and you have a body. Okay? So conviction doesn't happen in your body. You know, you experience pain if you touch a hot plate, Right? Conviction doesn't happen in your thought, will, and emotion, and it doesn't happen in your conscience. Your conscience is something that's given by God, but your conscience can be seared. How do you know my conscience might be at a different place than uh, some drug dealer in Warts? My conscience might say, you know, don't steal money from the offering bucket. His conscience might say, uh, I'm only going to sell drugs to 10 people today. Like, we're, we're just in a different place, right? Your conscience can get seared. And, my, and our conscience can be in two different places. Like, I'm concerned about stealing money. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'm trying to cut back on how many people I'm dealing. You know, like, we could be at a different place. So, we can't depend on our conscience alone. We have to rely on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And conviction doesn't happen in your body. It doesn't happen in your soul. It happens in your spirit. And it's something that's a gift from the Lord. And you have to learn to trust it and honor it. And to keep it alive. To keep it fresh. And it stays fresh by staying in the Word. Staying in the presence. Staying with God. Staying with Him. Let Him revive your convictions. To pull you to make this decision or pull you to make that, that decision. I've heard people have deep convictions in their spirits about a given, a given topic. And they're so convicted about it, but they... In their mind and their will, they want to do this so badly that they'll research, 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 and study, and study, and study. So much that it becomes louder than their convictions. And then now they have a reason to overcome, to step over the conviction. Because they've appeased their conscience. 
rationalization. Because your body and your conscience, your mind and your convictions, they all have a voice. And you have to beat down that conviction. For those of you, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, that conviction thing is loud. And you have to beat it down to not do it. <laughs> a lot of people say, oh, I struggle, I don't hear the Lord. I, that's not true. John, uh, John 10 says that we hear the voice of our Father. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So I don't, I don't hear God's voice. I think the problem is you don't want to hear God's voice. Because God's voice is loud in the realm of our spirit. We don't want to hear it. You know, there's that Misty Everett song that people walking around with their fingers in their ears, singing la 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 la. I don't want to hear the sound of the coming king. Yeah, Josh knows the song. But that's true. I like that. We say, God, what do I do about this? How do I make this choice? How do I make this decision? You already know in your spirit. You already know in your, in your convictor. You don't need any research to know what your conviction is. We say, but in our spirit, we like this. I'm going to find something else. God, what do you say? I'm going to study. I'm going to research. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to see. You know, we find reasons to make, to buy that car that we can't afford. You know, to, uh, to buy a house that we're not ready for. To move into this place. We're not ready for it because my conviction says no, but I'm going to, I'm going to rationalize this thing out. I'm going to appease my will and my conscience. I'm going to keep feeding my will and my conscience until the voice is so loud that I feel good about making a soulish decision. And you oppose. You end up stomping out the voice of conviction. You can do that once. Do it again. After a while, things get shh, things get quiet. And that's tough. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, and the Bible says that he, he sought repentance but could not find it, though he sought it with many tears. See, we think repentance is a prayer to pray, but repentance is about bringing things right in our spirit. And this is a tough word. Like this, uh, anytime you, we, in a grace culture where we are, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Hey, you sin, you know, you fall short. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. But the measure of how you deal with your heart goes to a different level. Because if sin's no longer the issue and you're not separated from God, then God's looking at your heart. You know, Matthew seven twenty one. It talks about the people who say, "Lord, Lord, did I not?" Heal those other people in your name? Did I not open up their eyes? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And he says, Depart from me, you work of lawlessness. You lost your way. I don't even know who you are. The heart, the character that we develop in private is so essential. Because we're going to preach grace and we're going to talk about the power of grace and we're going to talk about. What the love that God lavishes on us, but that love, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is not required. When we say this is what you have, we got to realize what's required of us has to go to a different level. Now, I'm encouraged to read 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is David's great sin, where David, the other kings had gone on to battle. The others were in battle. David stays back during the battle time. He's hanging out at the crib. He's up on the penthouse, and he's looking out, and there is Bathsheba. And she is taking a bath. And he is enjoying the view. Yeah. He's enjoying the view. 
in the battle that he stayed back from. He's out fighting. And so he calls for Bathsheba. Come over to my place. I got a nice house. Let me show you. Let me show you my crib. Let me show you my crib. <laughs> Come over. The Bible says that he spends some loving time with her. They like together. She is pregnant. Oops. <laughs> Bring over. She goes back. And now I've got an issue. Because his secret has found him out. She's pregnant. Now he has to do something about it. See, uh, there's, a, there's a saying, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, make you stay longer than you wanted to stay, and make you pay more than you wanted to pay. It's very expensive to sin. Very costly. David, let's go call the guy. we got to fix, we got to change the way this looks. Call Uriah. Let's hang out. Uriah, Uriah comes back. And he sends him back home. He says, hey Uriah, you've had a long day. You've been fighting hard at war. You must be tired. I'm sure you haven't seen Bathsheba in some time. Why don't you go spend the evening over there? Hint, hint. You know, so he's trying to play a cover-up game to cover this mess. You know, when you get into sin, you start losing yourself a little bit, and you start, okay, let's cover this. We gotta do this. Let's do this so we can cover this, right? <laughs> and uh, so he goes, sends you right there. Second Samuel chapter eleven. Verse 6, then David sent to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. Meaning he was making small talk, chit-chat. That's not why he was there. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a, pre and a present uh, from the king was sent out after him. Verse 9, listen to this. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go to your house? You're not playing ball here, Uriah. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. You know what that is? That is a man of conscience and of integrity. It says, the ark of the Lord is in a temporary shelter. It's in a tent. And I'm going to go sleep in my house. My brothers are dying, fighting, and I'm going to go lay with my wife. Does that work? Like, he, he had a conviction. And his conviction was so loud that it made him say no. Strength to say no comes from conviction. Strength to say no comes from, I will not defile my conscience. 
I will not beat it down. The gift that God's given me, I will not trample this thing. That's where it comes from. We know the story. Uh, David was not happy about this decision. And verse 12, then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and he drank before him and made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with, with, with his Lord, with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So now David tries to get him drunk. You know why he wants to get him drunk? Because when you people get drunk, their clothes come off. It's true. People get drunk, their clothes come off. You look at it all through the Bible, people spend time drinking, your clothes aren't staying on for a long time. So David says, I know what to do here. We gotta get this guy, we gotta loosen him up. He's too tight, he's all tight. Let's, let's have a party. Let's loosen this guy up. Let's get him a little under the influence. This is no. Even then, he stayed there. So David's now in a bad spot because his adultery is being found out. And so David says, Joab, just give this letter to Joab. In the letter it says, Joab, approach this area, put Uriah on the front line, and when it's time to fight, have your men step back. Meaning he's the first guy catch an arrow. Verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Man, you're in the hot seat. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. Look what happens in the next passage. Nathan the prophet comes to him. And he comes over to David. You know, you ever had people that pray for you and they call you once in a while and say, Hey, I've been thinking about you. <laughs> Usually when that happens, there's a reason they've been thinking about you. What's going on? And you're like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right? What's happening? So Nathan comes over in 671. Then the Lord, the Lord sent Nathan to David and came to him. Hey David, what you been up to? Lord gave me a word for you, but I'd share it. There are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor men had nothing except one ewe lamb. One little ulam, which he brought and nourished, and they grew up together with him and his children. I would eat of his, his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. This man loved his little lamb. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was, he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ulam, ulam and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So, in the story, we have a rich man who has access to many lambs, and we have a poor man who only has one who loved it dearly. The rich man had a traveler come by, and he said, I don't want to give up one of my lambs, so I'm going to take the poor man's lamb and give it to the traveler. 
And David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So this is the deception of sin. Draws you out by the temptation. He sins. He continues to sin. Lust to flame to murder. And we think that's it, right? That was the full deception. That was all of it. No, no. What happens here is Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The Lord brought him a word. And out of what was in his heart, he pronounced judgment. And when he made judgment, he just made sure that the hammer is going to fall right on his head. When, when David said, that man deserves death, I pass judgment on that guy. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. When he said, I judge that man, he should be put to death because he did not make it right and he had no compassion. The only thing he did with that, the hammer came. You know what's strange here is the word of the Lord was, was a good word. But what happened was his response to God, his response to God's word didn't produce anything good. You know, the same sun that, that melts butter or hardens clay. What a word can go out into someone, it sets them free. But to someone whose heart is not in the right place, the way they respond, things don't always work out well. This is why our heart is so important. Proverbs tells us to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Like, it's so much bigger than we think, y'all. Like, to walk uprightly before the Lord in the quiet place. So when the word comes to you, something else doesn't come out of you. But what came out of David when the word of the Lord came was judgment. And he got judgment. It's terrible. You know, it's powerful to, to see Uriah, you know, his example of, I'm not going to do this. It comes from conviction. What about someone else? Joseph. Uh, in chapter 39, uh, we know a story. Joseph was sold into slavery, was working for Potiphar. In verse 7, it says, After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me, because Joseph was a good-looking guy. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. I am a steward in my master's house, and my master trusts me. And the master's wife is saying, come away with me. And Joseph's like, I'm not going to betray that. He has a conviction. He has a conscience. He has something in him that says, I will not do this. Verse 9, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though he spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Or even be with her. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties. And none of the other household servants were inside. In other words, she set him up. She said, hey guys, y'all go fishing. We need the house for ourselves, please. Okay? Verse 12. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. 
That is, that is a, a very persistent woman. This was like, she was turned down one day after one day after another. And finally, she's like, I'm not going to be denied anymore. And she grabs a hold of this guy. Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the, and run out of the house. Verse 14, what's it say? Her, her brought into us a Hebrew to mock her. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Whoa. She lying. He said, come to bed with me. She said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. This is what it took for him to keep his integrity. He had to run. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. You know what it means to flee? It means run. It doesn't say do warfare. It doesn't say make declarations. It doesn't say call your neighbor. It says run out of there. <laughs> Get out of there. He made it out with nothing. Runs out into the desert. You know what? Sometimes, when you're trying to guard your sexual purity, that's what it looks like. As you have to book it. You may be butt naked by the time you book it, but you better book it. Because he, you know, he went out with nothing but his integrity. But that was enough. He went out with nothing but his character. And God was pleased. He could have fallen in that time, and I guarantee you, Things would not have gone well. He wouldn't have gone to the prison. He wouldn't have met the baker. He wouldn't have met the cupbearer that he interpreted their dreams. He would go later go on and stand before Pharaoh. But his integrity actually brought him to go to imprisonment because Potiphar's wife says, he tried to rape me. And Potiphar comes back and says, you're going to prison. He goes to prison. He meets the cupbearer. He meets the baker. He, they have dreams. He interprets the dream. And then he tells the cupbearer, one day you're going you're gonna to hold... Uh, you're going to taste wine again for Pharaoh. And he gets before Pharaoh. The Bible says after he interpreted the dreams and the, the, they left, the Bible says that they forgot about him. And then they go out there before Pharaoh. You know, I don't know if you've ever done something for people and you think, well, I've done a lot for them. And then they just kind of forget about you. That's what happened, you know. They forgot all about him. He goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh starts having dreams. And the cupbearer goes, oh, Joseph. <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> nice. I was supposed to write something down. <laughs> this guy can interpret, and he ends up being the right hand of Pharaoh. But he would never gone through a prison if he didn't go through a test of his character, testing and proving. It may not always take you to a place that you enjoy, but it takes you to the next place. It takes you to your next level. It takes you to your next. Um, place in God. For him, he went from managing Potiphar's house to prison. And when, and in God's eyes, that was promotion. Congratulations, you got promoted to a prison. Now you're managing that. And then he came out of the prison. You know, it's, it's only the pattern of the Savior to go down and then come up. In fact, when you do the right things and you go down, you ought to start rejoicing because 
after you go down, there is coming a resurrection on the other side of it. When you have done everything right on your part and things go south, just give thanks to the Lord. Not for the thing, but in the thing. Not for the prison, but in the prison. When, the, when, the, when Paul and Silas went to jail, what do you think that, why do you think they're praising the Lord? And that the prison is shaking because in that place, they say, you know what, we've gone down, but there's coming a resurrection. There's coming a time where we're going to be set loose. There's coming a time where we're going to come out of this thing. So it's powerful. So where does, oh, let me read the verse in 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Amplified. Listen, Amplified. It says, run away from sexual immorality in any form, whether thought or behavior, whether visual or written. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the one who is a sexually immoral sins against his own body. So I like to amplify. It says, run away. It's a good word. 1 Corinthians 6.18. So where does the strength to say no come from? You know, I think we have to get vision for what's on the other side. You know, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in that time, Nebuchadnezzar had built a big um, idol of himself, an image of himself. And they got the band together, and when the mariachi band came together, and they got the big guy with the big thumper, and the other one with the little guitar, and then there's someone else blowing the whatever, because of the giant kazoo, you know, they, they blow it, and when they blow it, everyone's supposed to fall down. That's the plan. There are three Hebrew boys, so we're not bowing down. They stood up. Nebuchadnezzar says, what's going on? You guys aren't doing it. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So Nebuchadnezzar had said, you guys, when we play the music, they're bow down. You better get with it. You got one shot. He could have just killed him, but he said, I'll give you one more chance. You got to bow you got to bow to my system. This is the way I do things. Bow to me. Kiss the ring. Do it. And they said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Meaning, you are not a deciding factor in what's happening in our spirit. We have a conviction before the Lord. Verse 17, if the God whom we serve exists, then he is able to deliver us from the, from the blazing fiery furnace and from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have set up. You know what that is? Those, men, those are men who have a body, they have a soul, and they have a spirit. And in their spirit is conviction. And the conviction is saying, do not bow. And say, you know what? We are believing God for deliverance. But if we don't get deliverance, I'm still not going to betray what's in my spirit. Holy to conviction. That's where strength comes from. You get vision for conviction. When you get vision for that, you've got to start seeing what's on the other side. But if you're going to be stubborn about something, be stubborn about God, about your convictions. Put your feet down and don't move. Like, grab a hold of it and say, I'm not coming off of this. And everyone else may be silent, but I will not be silent. I will be loud and I will be heard. Because that, you know what the threat was to the three Hebrew children? Was the pressure of the people. Because there's a multitude of people saying, just bow down. 
Do it, do it for yourselves. Don't you know that we're, you're, you're gonna, this is going to come back on us? Remember, remember when, when Moses went back to Pharaoh and he began to say, let my people go, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh told Moses, I'll tell you what, since you're so zealous saying let my people go, now you're going to go grab your own straw. Oh, by the way, let's double the workload. So the people, I guarantee you, there's a peer pressure that says, guys, you bow down. If you don't bow down, this is going to come back on us. It takes conviction. So this ticks off Nebuchadnezzar. He heats up the furnace. I don't know if it's double or three times, whatever. Seven times. Seven times. Seven times. And it was so furious, and he was so enraged at doing that, that the guys throwing the three Hebrew children in the fire, the Bible says that, that they died. They were slew. They were slain. They went to throw them in. And then Nebuchadnezzar is looking down in there, and in verse 25, he says, didn't we put three guys in there? They were bound in ropes. And he says, I see four men, listen to the next word, loose. Man, this is why you hold to your, to your conviction and why you hold to your conscience. Because on the other side of a furnace is freedom. On the other side is liberty. That what has had them bound going in was now loose from them. And that it brought the presence of Jesus walking among them. I heard a story uh, recently about a, a pastor um, who he was... He was in, I believe, China, and he was Vietnamese, and he was smuggling Bibles around. And for every one Bible that he had, it equaled three years in prison. Well, he got caught with some Bibles. He said, I only had one truck. <laughs> one truck load, like a big loaded down. He got caught. They caught him. They tortured him. They said that when he was being tortured with the, with the taser, so we would try to tase him, and he said, I just felt the joy of the Lord. And I just laughed, and I laughed. They would do it, and I would laugh, and I would laugh, and I would laugh. And the guy was looking, he couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And so he went like this to tase himself and blew the fire out of himself. <laughs> you know, because he didn't think it was working. But when he would tase the pastor. You just laugh. You know, when you hold to your convictions, that brings the presence. This is why we do that. This is why we hold to our conscience, why we hold to the presence. It holds to our convictions is it brings the presence of Jesus. It's a crazy story. There's so much more to it. Um, in Acts chapter 4, where does the strength to say no come from? Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 13, in the context of... Uh, the apostles had been preaching Jesus and, and uh, preaching, preaching the cross and preaching salvation and baptizing people. And it was stirring up everybody because everybody had just crucified Jesus. Verse 29, the officials had beaten them and flogged them. And they said, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Don't you do it anymore. Verse, verse 29 says, they were praying and they said, and now, Lord, take note of their threat. I mean, write it down. Don't forget that they threatened us, God. And grant that your bondservants may speak with the word, your word with all confidence, 
while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Look at the rewards of holding to your character and holding to your conviction. It brought promotion to Joseph. It brought the presence of Jesus with the three Hebrew children. And then Peter, it brought a shaking encounter of the Holy Spirit. That the place was shaken and they were, they began to speak the word of God with boldness. On the other side of their no was an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The strength to say no comes from an awareness of what's on the other side. Not saying no is so short-sighted. It is so for this world. But when you, where no comes from is you're living for a different world. You can see beyond that situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You know, if there's something I want us to come away with about this is a value for the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think the reason believers are quick to violate their conscience and their convictions is that they've not been trained to value the living presence of the Holy Spirit on their life. People don't value it. And honestly, most believers don't know it. You know, the Holy Spirit, He's in you by your salvation. He's with you by your gift and your calling. But then He comes upon you the anointing, the Holy Spirit upon you is, is, the, is the anointing for ministry. You know, I, I think Lorena is a perfect example because Lorena has always had the Holy Spirit in her and she has the Holy Spirit with her, with her calling and her gifts. But the day she stood here, she felt the Holy Spirit come upon her and then ministry started to happen, right? Amen. That's, there's a difference between the anointing that comes upon you. And a lot of people never, never learn that. They never discover, whew, the anointing's on me, and I can, there's power now to heal. So well, all believers can do it. So, yeah, sure, all believers can do it. That's, that's theologically correct. But the, the theology gives you access to the anointing. And by the anointing, there's power to heal. Yeah. And when you learn to tap into the anointing that's on you, you have to value and protect that. That's why you say no. It's you value that presence. And most people have never been taught that you need to value your testimony and that you need to value, value uh, your conscience. And even more so, you have to value the anointing that comes upon you for ministry. Because <laughs> that can lift. So I can't believe I don't believe that. You believe wrong. That can lift. He's not going to abandon you. He'll never leave you for safety. He's, he's in your spirit. He just joined himself to the Lord as one spirit with him. You can't. You can't break up what, what God has joined together. Let no man put us under like God. You're joined with Him. We have a union in the Spirit. But that anointing that comes upon you, it's like the dove that came on Jesus. It's, it's so delicate and so precious. It requires your, your temperance to be slow and walk with Him. Am I going to do this? I've, I've felt 
just as grieved about making a purchase at Best Buy as I felt grieved about some sin. Because it was, it was my flesh that I bought. I, was a, I remember it was, it was a camera before I went to Mozambique, and I bought it without the money. I think I bought it on credit card. I bought it. I didn't have the money for it. But I remember just, oh. when you begin, when the anointing is on your life, and you experience the anointing, the way you spend it, it can grieve you, or not grieve you. The way you live it. What you eat, you can, I'm telling you, you can eat a slice of pizza and feel like you've fallen in a horrible sin. Right? Doesn't this raise a standard? It's why, it's why Jesus says, the law said don't commit adultery, but he said, if you even look with lust in your heart, you, it's already done. It's a done deal. So the Bible says, don't, don't, don't murder your brother. If you call your brother a fool, like, look how Jesus manages the anointing on his life. Like, he is, it is with utmost awareness of, of a consciousness of the presence of God. It changes what movies you watch. It changes what you're scrolling at. It, when you're aware of the virtue of the Holy Spirit, it should govern you. It should be the governing force in your life. It should govern when you read your Bible. It should govern when, you, when you're praying. It should govern when you get up, when you go to sleep. Look, that thing should be in charge. The last um, passage I want to show is in Luke chapter 8, verse 43. This is the story of the woman of the issue of blood. Verse 43, it says, And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately the hemorrhage stopped. She got healed. Verse 45, And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were denying it, Peter said, Master of the people, and are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Mm-hmm. No, that is, I am aware of the presence of God. So what do you mean who touched you? There's all these people. It's like, I live my life aware of the virtue on my I live my life aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know virtue has gone out from me. That tells us of his relationship with the Holy Spirit. And while we guard our conscience, while we guard our conviction, because that thing becomes so precious, it becomes so holy that it's not worth it's not worth trading that for whatever pleasure in this world is. All ministry flows out of virtue. I think most of us have been taught to place value on knowledge and not value on virtue. And if we value virtue like we value knowledge, we'd be a whole different caliber of believer. Because when we think we need to grow at something, what do we do? We go, let's go buy an e-course, an eight-week e-course. We're going to study this for eight weeks. We think of knowledge. And we need knowledge. His people uh, perish for the lack of knowledge, the book of Hosea says. But we need virtue. We need real life-changing power flowing through our lives. That when we lay hands on the sick, something happens. When we pray for the demonized, something happens. When I pray for someone 100 miles away, something happens. It's real virtue. We were having all that. I was telling you all about uh, what we're just dealing with that spirit of delay. 
and we're having all these delays with like, the land, with my work, with some relationships at work. I was having delay after delay, delay. And I called Angie, and I said, Angie, would you, uh, oh, no, no, I messaged text her, Angie, you got to pray for us about this delay. Like, what, what's going on with this? You know, I asked her, said, do you, do you call this, I asked her, was asking her opinion, do you call this delay? Like, how do you respond to this? And she prayed. And that day, it all lifted. You know what that is? Virtue. That's someone 500 miles away says a prayer for you. And like three things break up. I'm like, yes, should have called earlier. But that's virtue. That James 5.16, my prayers are powerful and effective, was the efficacy of prayer. So let's just say this together. I am aware... Of the presence of God, of the presence of God on, my life. on my life. Before you make your next big decision, consider the presence. Consider Him. You can reason out a lot of things on why not to do what you know is true. You don't need research to do what you know is true. It's not, it's not a head thing. It's in your spirit. You don't need research for that. You need research to shut it off. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. You need research to shut it down. I, I better study this. Why don't you just do it? <laughs> you know, just obey the Lord, and you'll, you'll you'll see the fruit of that. We need virtue, not just knowledge. We, you can fool people with knowledge, but you can't fool people with no virtue. You can get a lot of people on board with head knowledge, but when you start laying hands on people, nothing happens. You ain't fooling nobody. Virtue and knowledge, we've got to have both. Restoring the conviction and restoring conscience. What happens if, we, if it's torn down? You know, uh, when you have a clean conscience, it's a mighty weapon. Man, if, there is a power to a clean conscience when you're not guilty. There's a power to your evangelism. There's a power to your life. You're salty. Your message is seasoned with grace when you're guiltless. Only God has the power to reset your convictions and wipe your conscience clean by His blood. Proverbs 6. Deliver yourself. Verse 1 says, My son, if you have become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth and you are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyelids, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. One of the best things you can do if you goofed up is deliver yourself. Bring yourself to the one you sinned against and deliver yourself. Say, so this is what I've done. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. So it, sounds, it sounds crazy. No, it's it's the wisest thing you can do. It says, go deliver yourself. Bring yourself before them to, I've done this. It's wisdom. Proverbs 6, verse 20, verse through 23, how to walk. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. Verse 22, when you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will, speak, they will speak with you. They will speak with you. Verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of light. 
Last verse is Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That's it. This is David, the guy that committed the adultery, that arranged for the killing of Uriah. He says, Thy word I have hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. That tells us that there is the possibility of restoration. There is the potential of walking upright before the Lord. The Bible calls David a man after his own heart. David was a sinner, but David was a repenter. He could repent. Go read Psalm 51. Against you, Lord, only have I sinned. Give me clean hands and give me a pure heart. Who may sin the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. David knew how to get right with God. And I tell you, if we can learn how to get right with God by delivering ourselves, we need to deliver ourselves and hiding His Word in our heart. We're going to protect our conviction. And it's a precious thing. Lastly, I want to tell you that the world knows the source of your convictions is the Word of God. I think most of the church doesn't know that this is the source of our convictions. But the world knows. And they're coming after this. That's right. That's right. Because they know this is the problem. For now, we have a window. But it's coming. And I believe it's coming sooner than we think. Mm-hmm. Hide it away. You're going to take away my Bible? Sure, not anytime soon. But there's certainly a lot of places in, on this planet that they do take it away from. Mm-hmm. And so you have to hide this in your heart. Yes. Uh, looks like I'm doing a lot more reading than what I have. That's the good response. That's that's the correct response. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just pray, Lord God, that even though this is a a sobering kind of message, Father, I pray that it would cut to our heart, Lord Jesus. God, that we can learn how to live uprightly before you and that we bring pleasure to you. Because when you're pleased, your power soon follows. So, Lord... Help us live uprightly before you, God. Let us pay attention to the delicacy of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, God. Let us pay attention that when we move to the right and you're not moving to the right, that we stop moving to the right. God, let us stop in our tracks. Father God, that our body is not in charge, our soul is not in charge, but let us stop in our tracks for you, even though we can't reason it and we don't understand it. But we know you and we know your presence. Help us to follow your presence at all costs. In Jesus' name. Amen.